Good morning. My name's Pam Canty, and I'm blessed to be a woman shepherd, a part of the marriage team, and a member of the Arboretum Community Group. This morning's reading is from Psalm 32. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away, and I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. Therefore, let all the godly pray to you while there is still time, that they may not drown in the floodwaters of judgment. For you are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with songs of victory. The Lord says, I will guide you along the best pathway for your life. I will advise you and watch over you. Do not be like a senseless horse or a mule that needs a bit and bridle to keep it under control. Many sorrows come to the wicked, but unfailing love surrounds those who trust the Lord. So rejoice in the Lord and be glad, all you who obey him. Shout for joy, all you whose hearts are pure. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Christ Central Church. Good morning, Christ Central Church. My name is Josh Kim. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central Church, and we're glad that you could join us as we continue our summer, ser- summer sermon series. Uh, there's a lot of S's there. In Psalms this morning, and today's psalm, as you have read, is Psalm 32, and we call this a penitence psalm. Penitence psalm, there are seven of them, and this is the second of those seven. It basically means it's a psalm, a song, that designated or designed to portray a sorrowful, repenting, seeking forgiveness on behalf of the worshiper. Uh, in other words, it instructs us in how to repent properly and ask for forgiveness from the Lord, saying, I'm sorry. And if you're like me, one of the most confusing lessons that I learned uh, growing up in a church was unrepentance. I got that I have sinned, but what does it really look like for me to repent of my sins? And why should I repent of my sins? Or sometimes, dare I say, in the Western church, I often do not ever hear a sermon on repentance. When's the last time you were called to repent of your sins before the Lord? So I invite you this morning to Psalm 32 as we delve into what it means to have a proper joy of saying, I'm sorry to the Lord. You know, one of the first things that we teach our children as they grow is something that we forget as we age. We think it's a very important thing. So I see all of us, many of our parents in our congregation, teach this, even throughout our Sunday worship or even after Sunday worship. And what is that? It is admitting that we're wrong or have done something wrong to one another. 
saying I'm sorry is something that we all teach our children and want them to learn as they grow older. And there are a number of reasons why we give to why we want our children to do so. But there's also a reason why as we age, we often tend to forget or don't want to apologize or repent. So I did some research on why people often don't want to do that. And Dr. Guy Winch, writing for Psychology Today, says these are the reasons why we often do not want to apologize or, quote-unquote, repent. He says, number one, the reason why we don't want to do that. You could check your hearts. Perhaps this is why we have a hard time repenting or saying sorry. In any context of relationship, uh, relationships, Guy Winch says, admissions of wrongdoing are incredibly threatening for non-apologists because it separates their action from their character, meaning if they apologize, they're admitting that they are not good people. Oftentimes we see this happening, right? How dare you call me this? That's not who I am, right? Number two, Dr. Winch says, the reason why there's no policy happens is because apologizing might open door for guilt for some of us, but also it might open door for shame. Because of shame that enters when we apologize, we don't want to. He also says apologies might open doors for reconciliation, even. But it also might open doors for accusations and conflicts. He also says apologizing is like assuming full responsibility of the issue, and the other party gets to go free. And finally, he says, not apologizing, apologizing is one of the ways to cope with dealing with emotions of things. If I apologize, then it might crack my emotional defensive mechanism. Well, you may agree or disagree of the list that Dr. Winch writes, but I think he's pretty on point on the reasons why we often struggle or fail to apologize when we have done something wrong or when we realize we have offended the another person. I believe embedded in these five reasons are, can be summed up in these two unknowns of the fear that we have in our apology and repentance. Because when we apologize like this, we admit that I can't do anything about what happened. There's fear of losing control of yourself. But also when you apologize, you realize you're not sure how the other person will react to your apology. So there's a fear of losing control of the circumstances. These two unknowns often drives us away from apology. So often we hear the famous lines, oftentimes the politicians use this after a tragedy happens. They say, well, there were mistakes made but never really owning the fault at hand. And they say, well, the situation got out of hand. Mistakes were often made in this situation, but there is not an apology that is made. And you know, I think it is often reflected in our relationship with God as well. In our struggle with repentance, the bigger struggle is not the fact that we know we have sinned. It's not that you and I don't know that we are wrong. Right? You could easily say during the meet and greet, hello, my life is great, you're smiling, I'm smiling, we seem to be in a great place today. But as you close your eyes, you know when you stand before the Lord, the accusation comes your way. And you know you have done wrong. So it's not a problem of you not knowing that you have done wrong, but the problem that we often struggle is we're not in control anymore when we admit that we have done wrong. 
we often wonder, how will God react? In other words, there's fear of wondering, well, I failed and failed and failed again. Will God truly forgive me again for the tenth time? And the question is, why would he do this? Why would he do that? Especially in a society and a culture that you and I live in that often measures our worth based on what you have done for me lately, it is hard for us to admit that we didn't do so much good, let alone to acknowledge that we did something wrong in God's sight. Just look at the visceral reaction that we have when we're accused of something. It doesn't only have to be from the right or the left, right? If someone says, hey, you're racist, wait, 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 don't call me that, I'm not that. But you don't care about the life of the unborn, wait, 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 don't tell me this. I do, I do. Look at the visceral reaction that says, oh, I'm not this, I'm not that, I'm not this, rather than perhaps checking your heart. I'm not saying admit to some things that you have not done wrong, but perhaps the heart, the posture of those who believe in Christ should not be, no, 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 that's not me, but rather say embracing the heart and recognizing that we are, in fact, sinners saved by God's grace. Church, isn't Christian? By definition, you are damned without Christ. Isn't that the posture that we ought to have towards our God and to one another? Isn't that the very definition of what it means to follow Christ, that you are not good enough apart from Christ? So this psalm reminds us, again, King David, the writer of this psalm, reminds us to come back, to remind us of the essence, the foundation or what it means to follow Christ. That's what he says in verse 1, well, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven. Verse 2, he says, yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has clear of guilt. The word joy, the true blessedness in other translation echoes Psalm 1, as we saw a couple weeks ago. What is truly blessed life? What does it really mean for you to live according to, uh, according to the law of the Lord? What does it really mean for you to be the wise person that God intends you to be? What does it really mean for you to live as God has created you to be? The psalm says is a repentant person who is confessing, recognizing who they are before the Lord. That is a person that is truly joy, freed to follow after the Lord. So this psalm gives us three pictures of what it means to be forgiven what it means to have this true joy of repentance in our life. And again, the first picture, as we see, is a picture of forgiveness. The picture of forgiveness. When my child was a young toddler, we realized he needs teachers to teach him the way of life, to walk this life uh, to the best of his, the way that God has created him to be. So we're researching, what are good teachers can he have? in his life. So we found this one teacher that liked to use songs to teach young children how to act properly. So one of the songs that he learned, he loved to listen to this over and over and over again, is some that goes something like this. The song says, saying I'm sorry is the first step. Saying I'm sorry is the first step. Prince Tuesday's crown got really messy. He got so mad. Saying I'm sorry is the first step. If you know Prince Tuesday, you know that this teacher is Daniel Tiger, right? <laughs> Daniel Tiger, the great wise one, 
says, saying sorry is the first step when we have done wrong things. Saying sorry is one step towards reconciliation. Do you think it worked? Yes, if they has, he watched this thousand times, right? This was brainwashed into him, not to me actually, but to him. It's just the other day, um, my wife and I got into an argument. Of course, it's about something that I have not done that she asked for a thousand times. Like, can you, did you do this? I'm like, no, I did not. And, of, and instead of saying sorry at the moment, of course, we all do this, right? Can, you, can, can we say amen to that? We all do this. Um, of course, I have a thousand reasons why. Why? I'm busy. Do you not know that? I'm tired. Look at me, right? You always ask me at the wrong time. Well, I'll do it, but it's too hard for me. Putting this in a hamper is too hard for me, right? <laughs> and here comes my seven-year-old boy just who is quietly playing in the background. And he so, spoke up in the midst of argument and says, Daddy, just say I'm sorry. And he just goes on. <laughs> Out of the mouth of the babes, God speaks the truth. Perhaps one of the biggest struggles in any relationship, regardless of the marriage, dating, parental, friendship, is simply saying, I'm sorry. And how it is similar in our struggle, in our relationship with God. This psalm reminds us the wrong picture of repentance is simply lack of acknowledging our fault. Simply not repenting. It's just not repenting, period. And that's what David says in verse 3. Is out of his testimony. He says, when I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away. And I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy upon me. My strength evaporated like the water in the summer heat. You see, lack of repentance, lack of turning away, confessing was eating him up inside. Physically, it was tormenting him. He's vivid in his explanation of what was happening. His strength was sapped away as in the heat of the summer. It is a picture that we could easily associate with in the weather like today. Just a couple of weeks ago, my AC was broken for another time. And oh my goodness, like our strength was sapped away just sitting there in my couch. And why don't we repent, right? Because here, we don't repent because we don't value repenting. We don't think that we need to repent, or we're not sure if repenting is good enough. The Scripture reminds us, again, ever so clear throughout in other parts, in Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned. Should we repent? Absolutely, because all have sinned. And 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. Again, to remind us, yes, repentance, asking for the forgiveness of the Lord is enough because of the one who is willing to forgive us. So the wrong picture, according to David, is simply lack of repentance. But the correct picture, the joy of repentance, is the joy of being forgiven. And that's what... David reminds us in this text in verse 1 by saying, Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. Church, true joy, according to some writer, is the one who's truly happy, is the one who's truly forgiven in the Lord. And this picture that he gives of being forgiven 
speaks of being reckoned to be righteous. When he says, I'm being put out of sight, the covered, in other translations, meaning it is God who covers and the sin is taken away from the holy eyes of God. And when he says, clear of guilt, live honesty, no deceit, he's speaking of one of the one who is justified, forgiven, who do not need to hide or run away because there is no sin in him. In this picture of what it means to be forgiven, what David is calling us is do not cover yourself by not repenting. Do not cover yourself of not acknowledging that you have done wrong. Those things will not go far. Your strength will be sapped away, but rather come and be covered by God's forgiveness where you can stand confidently before the Lord in clear conscience. True picture of repentance, church, is confession and repentance and receiving forgiveness in faith in the Lord. As I shared before, oftentimes we, I fear that in our churches today, repentance is missing in our vocabulary. And how can we tell? Because oftentimes we don't pray. We don't pray. How can you repent if you don't pray? And how can you say you're forgiven if you don't repent? How do you understand the depth of God's grace? if you have not experienced the goodness of the Lord. And why is prayer so tied to repentance? Because prayer is an avenue, church, where we come in contact with God of the universe when we are confronted by who God is and are in communion with Him. How can we not but to repent of how short we fall short of God's glory? If we cannot pray, we cannot repent. And when we fail to repent, the only danger, the danger that comes to us is our knowledge puffing up. We, became, we become conceited. We place ourselves above others. We often become like Pharisees who spoke of good deeds but failed to see who he was before the Lord. The first picture of repentance involves being forgiven as we learn to confess our sins before the Lord. May I ask you, church, this morning, are there areas in your life that you have not confessed before the Lord? Are there things in your life that you need to bring to light and to show others and to God our needs for forgiveness and healing? Are there areas you become so desensitized to it where you say, surely, God, all that but not here. First picture simply means come to the Lord, O saints of God. Come and repent and receive goodness of the Lord, the forgiveness of the Lord that abounds in our God who loves those who repent before him. What's the second picture of repentance that we see? It's not only joy of being forgiven, but the joy of being in fellowship with our Creator the joy of fellowship with our Creator. One of the ways I get to serve as a pastor of the church is to do premarital counseling. I know our scripture reader today talked about the marriage ministry that we have in our church where we try to encourage our marriages to be healthy. And one of the ways we do that is also through premarital counseling in teaching 
um, our new couples, how to grow in a relationship with one another. And one of the key aspects we talk about is conflict management, right? We often, often tell our couples, if you learn how to manage your conflict, because trust me, you will get into conflicts, right? I have met many couples that say, we never fight. We're perfect for each other. We understand we're so alike. That's what I thought too, right? <laughs> when I got married, I thought my wife and I were like just perfect. We were just like one another. How we ate, how we thought, how we values, all that stuff. All the new couples say that. And we got married first month into it. I realized she's not like me. And I'm not like her. We're complete opposites. Everything about us is opposites, right? So what do we have to do? Learn how to manage conflict. In marriage, it was almost impossible. We need a lot of outside help. That's what we try to do in pre-marriage counseling. Before you get into crazy conflict, come to us, right? Let's talk about it. Even if you're in marriage, even if you're single, you need this, right? You need to learn how to do that. And one of the struggles that we have is, um, the, the, often in a relationship, is filled with concessions out of desires for favor in the future, or worse yet, fear. Fear of, well, if I do this, that person might not do this. Well, the fear of, if I don't give in, this marriage or this relationship is not going to work. You see, at the heart of restoration of any relational conflict as we teach in marriage counseling, it's not just let's solve conflict, but restoration of relationship. And trust me, church, I have not gotten this figured out. My wife will testify to this. I counsel others as a pastor. I struggle with this in my own. One author of relationship said, an apology without relationship at the heart is just another manipulation. Apology without relationship is just another manipulation. That wisdom is echoed in this psalm today as well. Because the wrong repentance, as we see in verse 9, is a repentance and change, confession and change without a proper relationship. It says, not be like senseless horse or mule that needs a bit or bridle to keep it under control. Do not be like senseless horse or mule. This type of confession and repentance and desire to turn to God from wrong is based upon fear. Fear of being punished. Fearing God is not, uh, uh, fearing God is not a bad thing, but only if fearing God negates God's love. You see, proper fear of God leads to love of God. But the wrong fear of God leads us away from God. That's why here David is not saying, do not have fear of the Lord, but have holy fear of the Lord. Not a fear of punishment, but fear of who God is. So the wrong kind of repentance, as we see in this text, is repentance that is only behavior modification at best. Because based on this type of repentance, you only change behaviors until you get what you want. Just like a horse that moves left and right based on a bit and brittle that controls you because it may hurt you. This is not a picture of true repentance based on a true fellowship. But rather, what David says is a correct picture of truly forgiven person. True repentance is based on the restoration of a relationship with the Creator. Listen to David's way of explaining how God comes to the rescue when you pray. Verse 6, it says, Therefore, let all godly pray to you while there is still time, that they may not drown in the floodwaters of judgment, 
for you are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with songs of victory. Verse 6 says, well, still there is time, still until God can be found. Verse 7 says, God is my hiding place. God will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of victory. This is the heart of someone who not only is forgiven, but seeks restoration in relationship. In church, it gets better. Verse 8 and 9 talks about God's response, God's godly response to us, God's gracious response to us. The Lord says, I will guide you along the path best pathway for your life. I will advise you and watch over you. Do not be like the senseless horse or mule. As you see, the correct repentance doesn't sound like you're escaping judgment or getting the get-out-of-jail card. It sounds a lot like loving Father's guidance, doesn't it? A God who says, come, come to me, come to my embrace as you repent. There's a restoration of God's love, God's God's relationship that instructs us and guides us in a correct repentance church, in confessing of your sins and forgiveness, the focus is not getting away from the punishment. Rather, the focus is on restoration of relationship. And herein lies the gospel beauty and gospel truth. The why of repentance becomes the how of repentance. Your ability the reason why you can confess and receive forgiveness is how you can confess and forgiven. In other words, you can confess and repent only because of who God is. His love and compassion, his character of slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, draws out our confession towards him. Paul reminds us of this in Romans chapter 2, 4. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Oh, church, do you come in response to his kindness, in repentance? Do you come seeking restoration, the joy of being in fellowship with him again, to running away from your sin towards the arms of our loving Father. But we struggle with this, don't we? We struggle so hard with this because we often have a wrong picture of God in our mind. I used to do this all the time with my youth groups. I would always say, like in the middle of our sermons, close your eyes, church, and think about, think about a picture of God in your mind. And you know the picture that most people will say that they have? They'll say, my picture of God is angry God who's shaking a fist at me, who's writing down all the things I've done wrong and said, you failed, you failed, you failed. But you know, that's a picture that Satan wants us to have. Yes, we have failed before the Lord. But the picture, the scripture pictures for us is God who embraces a sinner a father who longs for his prodigal son to return, who runs after the son as he comes, even before he utters the words that I have sinned. A shepherd who leaves 99 behind to find the one lost ship. Um, our Savior who came, who gave his life so that we can confess, as we read from John 21, Jesus, I love you. Church, do you embrace this picture of a shepherd who loves us, who loves us, who loves us?
And if you had the picture of God who's ever running after us, shepherd who comes after us, then you can help but to run to him. You can help but to fall prostrate before him and realize that he is the only one that could lead us. He's the only one that gives us hope. Is your life marked by restored relationships? You know, I was often told to follow your mentors. And oftentimes we're told to follow mentors that have life that you want to be. And I think these days we recognize our mentors are also failed human beings. Oftentimes we are hurt not only by our mentors, but our parents, our siblings, our friends, our church leaders that often fail. And oftentimes it could break our relationship with the Lord because we thought they were better than us. Hence, we try to follow. But more wise counsel I often heard is not follow a perfect mentor. But this one person told me, follow repentant mentor. Follow someone who is repentant because his life may not be perfect. His whole life may not be perfect, but his whole life will be marked by restoration of relationship of God be manifested in his brokenness. Church, may we reflect that to the watching world. May we reflect that to our children. May we reflect that to one another. That is a picture of truly forgiven, a picture of repentance. The final picture, church, of what it means to truly be repentant is not only the one that who is forgiven, the one who is in fellowship, but the one who is following after the Lord. In other words, one who is truly worshiping the Lord. The repentance results not only forgiveness of your sin, the restoration of your relationship with God, but the response that it draws out of us is your ability now to say, I follow you. I turn from this path onto this path, not on my own again, but I'm following my Savior. The wrong response of repentance is lack of worship, meaning you repent, 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 confess, confess, confess all the time, sorrow, 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 but ultimately there's no change in your life. The idol still sits in your heart and is refusing to move. It's mere lip service. There is no worship. Might as well just say there were mistakes made in my life. But the correct repentance, the picture is directional change that happens. You follow God, and the worship flows out, out of you. That's what we see in verse 10 and 11. It says, Many sorrows come to the wicked, but unfailing love surrounds those who trust the Lord. And this is the culmination of it all, isn't it? So rejoice in the Lord, and be glad, all who obey Him. Shout for joy, all, who, all you whose hearts are pure. Shout for joy, all you whose hearts are pure. You see, if you truly experience God's forgiveness, grace, in your repentance, which verse 10 describes as Lord's unfailing love surrounding the one who trusts the Lord, the result is verse 11. It's not like you do this, you get that. It's like you cannot help but to do this if you truly experience the forgiveness, the joy of restoration. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, and the worship of His grace outflows from out of you. Why? Because you're now in the righteous standing before the Lord. 
Because again, verse 1 and 2 reminds us, now as you stand righteous before the Lord, you cannot help but to be joyful. It's not muster of joy on this Sunday because, oh man, I'm at church. At least I got to put my hands up and look like I'm happy. My life may be miserable, but I got to look happy to other people. No, it is saying if you're truly forgiven, man, you cannot help but to just display what's happening in your heart. Of course the worship flows out. A true worshiper is transformed by the grace of the Lord. You are free now to follow him. You're free to worship him. You're freed to obey his commands. You know, throughout the Old Testament, when someone, even the prophets who spoke God's word of the Lord, uh, the word of the Lord, faced God face to face, you know what they did? You know what these prophets, these great saints in the Old Testament did when they faced the Lord face to face, right? They fell. <laughs> they postured themselves and they covered themselves and saying, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die, right? Even the most eloquent writer, the speaker, Isaiah, right? You got to be so eloquent to write like 60 plus chapters in the Bible, right? This is a guy, when he saw the Lord, right, in the presence of God, this is what Isaiah, the most eloquent prophet perhaps says in verse 5 of chapter 6. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of the people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Woe is me, Isaiah says. But here, as one is standing before the Lord in Psalm 32, who's truly forgiven, restored in relationship, they shout, Joy in the Lord as they stand in the presence of God. To stand before the ultimate judge of the universe, the one who is able to discern from right and wrong and for you to stand there confidently in worship, that is true joy according to David. To stand before not on your own merit because if you do that, you'll say, woe is me. But as you stand before the Lord in confidence in his forgiveness, you could say, rejoice in the Lord, saints. Shout for joy and be glad, those whose hearts are pure. And church, that's the picture of where we're going to be. As we see in Revelation 7, 9 through 12, this is what he says as the, the saints gather. After this, I looked, and behold, the great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes, peoples, and languages, standing before standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Notice the description of those who are gathered here. They're wearing a white robe. You know what white robe represents throughout the book of Revelation? It represents purity in Christ. Those who are the saints that are given this new white robe that symbolizes Christ's righteousness given to them. And the palm branches, they symbolize allusion to the festival of Tabernacle in Leviticus 23. It's an annual occasion that commemorates Israel's dwelling in the tent under God's divine protection. It talks about God's protection of his presence. And what are they doing? Following Christ in worship, crying out, salvation belongs to the Lord. And that's the picture of a restored, renewed, redeemed, forgiven, and cleaned Cleanse saints of God, Christians who follow Christ will do in the end. That's the picture that you and I will do 
a repentant sinner, forgiven by God's grace, standing confidently before the Lord, not because of all the good things you have done, but because of the grace of the Lord that forgave you, and you could cry out, salvation belongs to the Lord, because that is our testimony. Amen? That may be your testimony, church. And what are they doing in their worship? Confessing to the grace of the Lord. It's not saying, God, look at all this good thing I've done. Look at all these churches I've planted. Look at all the souls I saved. No, no, no. Salvation belongs to our Lord. In my brokenness, in my forgiveness, salvation belongs to our Lord. And this is what the psalm does for the Israelites as they sing this song together in the assembly, gathering like this in the morning. As they sing this song, not only to themselves, but also to one another, they're instructing one another on what true repentance is. Forgiveness, restore relationship, turning around to follow God as they sing. They're singing in response to God's faithfulness. And as we do that, as they do that, they worship. They encourage one another to say, let's repent, church. Let's repent one another and look to the Lord who will forgive, who will guide. That's what this psalm is all about. Last week, I was at 49th General Assembly of our denomination. Um, if you do not know, we belong to a denomination called Presbyterian Church in America that was held in Birmingham, Alabama last week. I was there the entire week. And one of the highlights, there were a lot of things that happened, um, and you'll hear about the here and there, but one of the highlights was adoption of study report on abuse. Our denomination did a study report, ad interim study report, as they say, where they assign like 12 people or so, where they assign them and say, study on this and come back and report to us of what God has to say in the cultural movement of the today. So what they did was they, they sent out a 12 people, uh, I think it's more than 12 people, but they had a study group where they went and studied uh, reports of abuse that happens in a church. That includes domestic abuse, sexual abuse, spiritual abuse, power trip, and all that stuff in the church. And the report came back and outlines the biblical guidelines on what we, as a church, must do in fight against this deadly sin in the church. And this was an amazing time. This was given at the most important time of the business of the day, and we had experts, the panels, uh, which included Rachel Dalhollander, consultant uh, for this study report, and they gave this report. And I did what most people did as the report was happening, right? Most of us were probably thinking the same thing. We're thinking, wow, this is crazy, right? This happens, right? And then another thing crosses your mind when things like this happen, right? You're thinking, thank God I'm not like them, right? Thank God our church is not like them, especially in light of certain Baptist report that came out not too long ago. You're thinking, wow, wait, we have uh, our denomination, my church, we got a study report. They're trying to hide it. We're like, oh, we're much better than them. And you know, even I was thinking for our church, I was thinking, yeah, we have a report. We actually have policy. Thanks to our uh, women shepherds, Levan and Pam. We actually have it. So I was patting myself in the back thinking, well, we got a, we got a policy in place. Well, you, we got to do better, right? You guys, you guys want my policy? We got this, right? That's what I was thinking in my mind. Who do I sound like, church? A Pharisee, isn't it? The one who says, thank God, I'm not like those tax collectors, God. Luke 18. Man, that thought just crossed my mind, and I was deathly afraid of my standing before the Lord. 
Here am I as we hear from our denomination saying there are abuse happening in our churches rather than repentance and tears. I was thinking, I'm better than all of you out there. All of you out there, especially when one of the committee members basically called out our churches and said, we know abuse is happening in your churches. Let's not cover it up. Let's do a better job of unearthing it and investigating it. Church, I grew up in a church where I believe I received call to ministry and the pastor of the church is in scandal. The pastor that I looked up to all my life sexually abused one of the members in the church 20 years ago and covered it up. Never told a soul. Self-disciplined himself. And created this culture in a church where patriarchy was rampant. Abuse was covered. Male dominance was celebrated under the banner of correct theology and the banner of mission of God. I'm a product of that church. And here I am patting myself in the back, thinking I'm not like them. One of the things I had to do in the wake of the news that was reported was to gather with my fellow brothers and sisters that came out of this church. And we're still in the process. You know what the process is all about? We realize not only thinking, are we the victim of the abuse of the system, but also, did I participate? Was I a participant upon this abuse? And one more, did I benefit even though I wasn't a participant, even though I wasn't actively abused in it, even though I didn't actively abuse others in it, did I benefit? Did I benefit at the other's expense? Others suffering as a male pastor in the setting. I had to repent. I need to learn to repent in this. I need to acknowledge even though I may not have been that pastor and have sexually abused a member, but I was part of the church, part of the denomination, part of the presbytery. And one of the things I've learned coming to Christ Central is to learn to be in communion, in community with you all. One of the joys I received was an email I received back from one of our leaders when I emailed them saying, I'm going to be part of this letter I'm writing to the presbytery, wanting to investigate this fully. Please speak into my life if you see the patterns of abuse that I portray without me knowing it. And the joy was not, I don't see this in you, pastor. The joy was not that. You know what the joy was? The joy and freedom was We'll keep you accountable. We'll pray for you. Pray that this will not be true of you. But we'll be your sisters and brothers in watching over you. Church, there's so much joy in coming to the Lord in repentance. Not only you're forgiven before the Lord, but you get to be in a fellowship 
with the Lord, but also in worship of our Savior who forgives. And the benefit that flows into being in a community that pushes one another to do the same. That is a picture of joyful repentance. Church, will you join us in that manner? Our church is not a church that is a perfect place led by perfect people. But as we sing this Psalm 32, I pray that God's grace will invite us to repentance, to fellowship, to follow him in worship. As Jack Collins, the author of ESB Study Bible Notes on Psalms says, the godly are not expected to be sinless. Rather, they are those who believe God's promises and confess their sins. Let's pray.